Hey, this is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And before we start the show, we'd like to bring your attention to some cool conferences happening around the world. Specifically, NDC Sydney, happening August 14th through the 18th in Sydney, Australia. Now, I personally can't make it to Sydney this year, but you're going, right, Richard? Absolutely, I'm going, you know, because Sydney. Uh, Yeah, awesome. I wish I could go. So go to NDCSydney.com and register now. Save some money and register before April 30th for early bird pricing. And for more great NDC conferences, go to NDCconferences.com. Right. .NET Rocks, episode 1415, recorded Monday, February 6th, 2017. Hey, welcome back. It's Carl and Richard for another Geek Out. How you doing, buddy? I am well. I have a fresh cup of tea, the most important thing brain fuel <laughs> well there's also there's tea and then there's tea right so and i've realized i've i've raised a family of like tea snobs oh yeah where they care about whether the water's 205 degrees or 195 degrees and yeah and we have loose leaf tea so i tell you how important a good geek out is i went and made a proper boiled the water used loose leaf tea in a swiss filter because mm. i need a better cup of tea when i'm going to make a geek out sure absolutely the rest of the times, it's like bagging hot water, and I'm fine. <laughs> you got to have a little ceremony if you're going to go to ceremony. all of that brain power expense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I'm, geek outs make me happy. I hope that comes across. Oh, like, definitely. And especially <laughs> when, you know, you do what you did today, which is spend all day honing and writing the script and, and yeah. getting a real charge out of it. I can't wait to talk about this stuff. Absolutely. Well, and it's always a challenge when you're when you're digging into subjects that we've already talked about. Right. And there's new stuff. So there that's is. why we're doing this update. But first, it's better know a framework. Awesome. All right, man, what do you got? Well, uh, I read this on Engadget. This is one of the most popular uh uh, stories in gear right now. This is DARPA's sidearm system that snares drones from midair. So the whole idea is that when drones are flying around, it's kind of hard to land uh, sometimes, but rather, but it can be hard on them because you can damage them easily, especially in a battlefield, right? Or aboard a, a vessel. So DARPA's come up with this novel idea to sort of put out a a, a net. It's almost like a net, but it's sort of a, a think about it like a, a, a beam, a triangle beam where the bottom of the triangle is like a, a bungee cord. And they just sort of hang it in the way of the drone and the drone has a hook on it and it just sort of snags it. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's not, it's not, I think I've seen videos of that. It's not very dignified, but it certainly does the job without destroying the drone in the process. Yeah, it's not dignified at all. It's very, very basic, but um, interesting solution to a complicated problem, isn't it? Yeah, it's, that's, that's often DARPA's thing, too. Like, if somebody comes up with something so you're like, ah, oh, duh, yeah, should have done that. Right, <laughs> right. So you can get there at 1415.pwop.me. And uh, there's a video there that shows them using this with small drones, obviously, in uh, in a in a warehouse somewhere. Must be fun to work at DARPA. Yeah, I think it's always an adventure. No two ways about that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, nice find. Yeah, who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of Shuro 1388, which is one we did back in December, of course, a geek out when we talked about worldwide energy production. Because mm-hmm. uh, you know, nothing small, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> worldwide energy. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a, it's a big subject. And this uh, comment comes from Jasper Siegsmund, who says, Very interesting show. I just bought a new house. It's yet to be built. Which they sell as a zero-on-the-meter house, which, which is cool, right? What does that it, mean? Zero-on-the-meter. And then I'm, I'm reading Jasper's words here. That basically means that the energy production for the house should be sufficient to fulfill the energy needs of a normal family. Oh, I so see. So the house comes with photovoltaic panels for solar and an e-pump like you mentioned on the show for heating systems, right. a, a geothermal system. So water is pumped up from the ground. Heat difference is used for in-floor heating. So the mm-hmm. house is always around 21 degrees Celsius. That's about 72. Yeah. 
there's some more energy efficient tricks like heat winning in the ventilation system where heat is taken out of the air before it leaves the house and used to heat up the air entering the house. It's a heat exchange system. And water used for showers and bathing is preheated with the air as well. Plus uh, double pane glass, proper wall insulation so you don't lose any heat that way. Yeah. All of these things were a huge incentive for me to buy this particular house because I'm sure he paid a premium for that too. And I feel that everyone these days should be aware of the environmental issues that we've created. Taking these kinds of measures for yourself means that you can help slowly and steadily make the world a nice place to live in again. Of course, this only works if a large person in the world does the same, but you've got to start somewhere. And I'm looking at LED lighting, and I listened to that show on Lumen Cash, which yeah. is a few episodes previous to that. Uh, and the way they're building these houses is a little less interesting, due mainly to the fact that they can't run a lot of cables through the house. That's true. A lot of these new zero houses, the installation system's so tight, there's just no way to fish a wire through a wall anymore. Yeah. But... Uh, I, I, you know, I think LED lighting will become mainstream as part of this sort of system as well. So, uh, you will, because it's just lower power consumption. Great light, lower power. Yep. Absolutely. So, more of the same there. Uh, Jasper, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media, because we publish every show to Facebook and Google Plus. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. Uh, he's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. We recharge our batteries with him. <laughs> I think they're emotional batteries, but yes. Yes. It's not an untrue statement. Yeah. If you don't think we read this stuff and are affected by it, you're mistaken because it absolutely is important to us. Absolutely. Yeah, Especially when you that. say, that joke Carl did in the middle was so funny. I uh, drove off the road. I don't think I've ever seen that tweet, actually. <laughs> no, we, we've had somebody complain that you to- we said something funny that made them laugh so hard they lost. You know, yeah, maybe that was a different show. Driving. I think that was Mark Miller, actually. <laughs> Might have been. That's a very different show. Okay, it's a whole yeah. other thing. So when we talk about uh, fusion power, we're seriously talking about future things, so we thought. Yeah, Our- well... We did that three-show series back in the summer of 2014. Yeah. You know, so that's two and a half years ago now. Mm-hmm. And we and in May of 2015, I did a bit of a, one of the topics in that recap episode was a little bit of, of fusion as well. But, you know, the jokes are still true, right? Fusion's 10 years away and it has been for 50 years. And we're, we're discounting the whole MCAT thing, right? We haven't heard from that crazy Italian guy anymore. Are we? Yeah. Yeah. Not fusion. Let's Not just fusion. be perfectly honest. And if we're talking about, maybe we'll do a little bit of the fundamentals here, right? Okay. When you're talking about fusion, you're taking, uh, you're, you're taking what stars do. Stars take a lot of hydrogen and through a heck of a lot of gravity, mm. compress that hydrogen together until the two protons fuse together to become helium. Yeah. And in the, pro- in the moment that happens, it releases an awful lot of energy. Uh, in fact, stars don't only do that. The lifespan of a star involves fusing all sorts of elements up to about iron. Wow. And around around the point that if a star hits the iron point, it dies, usually in a massive explosion. Mm-hmm. Called a supernova. But uh, that, uh, well, yeah, supernova is a little more complicated than that, but that's a whole other show. Okay, Let's not so, even go there. So, it's resulting in a nova then. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, and uh, and that's where all the elements in the universe come from, my friends. Is yep. stars fusing hydrogen? Okay. So because we can't put a star on our planet per se, we just have to create star-like conditions if we're going to create fusion. Mm-hmm. And because we want to be in a smaller scale, that means we actually have to be dramatically hotter, somewhere around a hundred million centigrade. We and have to be start- dramatically hotter than the sun. Yes, dramatically hotter. Because why? Because we don't have gravity to work for us to compress the the protons that way, so we oh. have to create. We have to do it strictly with heat. Although at this heat level, you're so high, it, the numbers are kind of wonky. Right. So the the measurement for modern fusion folks is mega kelvins. You okay. like that? <laughs> that's a that's a million degrees kelvin. That's now, how much is a million degrees kelvin in Celsius? Uh, I don't about know. a million degrees. Oh, really? <laughs> it's well, you're just sort of at the point where the numbers are so big that the differences between the scales become very irrelevant. One point one, one point zero, one point yeah, yeah. Okay. So yeah, when I say ten megakelvins, I really meaning ten million degrees centigrade, and Good that's Lord. a lot, right? Yeah. And it can get up to maybe a hundred. Uh, wow. the, and that's sort of the the temperature where. 
hydrogen atoms will naturally fuse is about a hundred million degrees. Okay. So nat- naturally, quote unquote, naturally, it's right. incredibly high energy, and the that's just you know a hydrogen atom at that point is just a proton, right? You've long since blown the electron off because there's mm. so much energy involved. Do any of these fusion reactors, experimental fusion reactors, try to create artificial gravity so that they do not have to bring the temperature as high? Nobody knows how to make artificial gravity, buddy. Okay. We just don't know how to. Don't know how. <laughs> like that's, we don't know what that looks like, what, what kind of machine I guess is, but centrifugal I'm force doesn't count. Not the same thing. Not the same. And, they, and yeah, and at this energy level, it's not comparable forces. There's really only two techniques we've used to create fusion inertial confinement and magnetic confinement okay so inertial confinement is what the national ignition facility was doing where they use that 192 laser beams yeah to concentrate on a single point right which they did back in 2012 and it didn't work okay uh that project by the way is still going on it's amazing when you've spent several billion dollars how people try and find ways to use that machine still (laughs) Turn it into an automatic stamp liquor or something. Something like that. <laughs> so in June 2016, they finally sort of said, look, we're still going to try and figure out if our approach to fusion, which they call indirect inertial confinement, can actually cause a fusion reaction at all. Okay. Uh, they've given themselves till 2020 to get that there. and But in the meantime, they've actually got that machine doing a bunch of different things. Because it actually creates massively intensive X-rays, the kind of uh, energy release you would see, say, inside of atomic bombs. So they actually do testing of materials for making uh, bombs. Hmm. Uh, they they have been recreating star behaviors to see how elements will behave inside of stars. So the astrophysicists have been using it. Wow! And uh, it's also one of the craziest X-ray diffraction machines ever made. When you emit this many X-rays. All at once, which is what happens when this laser hits the hullerum, which is a little gold container in the center. There's this huge blast of x-rays that typically va- vaporizes your sample instantly. Yeah. But the spray from that vaporization tells you a lot about what the atomic structures involved. So you can uh-huh. understand elements by vaporizing them with this crazy laser system. Wow. And that is all I'm going to say about inertial confinement on its own, because that's there's not much more to say at this point. It really hasn't gone anywhere. Um, the techniques that have been working, that most money have been spent in, that have gone the furthest with, is magnetic confinement. Okay. Okay, so this is using big magnets wrapped in various shapes to try and contain this high-energy plasma and concentrate it to the point where fusion occurs. Right. Right? Now, in order for that to work, it already has to be a plasma when you put it in the container. So you're already superheating hydrogen somewhere or whatever gas you're using. Sometimes they use helium. And then you pump it into this massive magnetic field, and then you pressurize the field. You increase what's called the beta limit Mm. to compress the field to the point where it should fuse. Okay. Now, the largest project in the magnetic confinement business is the tokamak known as ITER. Remember ITER? I do remember ITER, yeah. This is the project in France. It's so big. It's It's the biggest one of its species. Many, many countries involved. Uh, this was the project known for once they get them to spend a billion dollars, they won't be able to cancel us mm-hmm. sort of mindset. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the latest report out of ITER is they have delayed their development by 10 more years. They okay. expect to uh, not have energy, uh, actually produce any energy until the 2040s. And they need more money. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Are you surprised? Nope. No. So that's sort of on the bad news side of to, uh, of the tokamak that the, and the tokamak design is very much uh, looks like a donut, right? Right. So a you big have, donut. Uh, yeah, it's a big donut uh, that weighs many 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 tons. Uh, another of this type of toroidal design uh, that I mentioned briefly in in the first show on fusion, the stellarator known as the Wendelstein Seven X. At the time, this was still being built, so. They, they, yeah, we recorded in, 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 uh, middle of 2015. Right. They were in the, in, in the process of doing testing. By the end of 2015, they generated their first plasma. They used a helium plasma to test it. Now, the, the difference between a Stellarator and a, and a Tokamak, they're still toroids. It's okay. just that the Stellarator, they call this a, a helios or a helical advanced Stellarator, which it, it deals with the fact that Plasmas at these energy levels, they turn. They they actually have a twist to them. 
Okay. And in a normal tokamak, they try and control that twist by passing energy through it, and it creates problems. And the idea in the Stellarator is that they would actually build the magnetic fields with the twists in it. In fact, the, the Wendelstein 7X has these five twists in it, sort of pentagon shape, which supports the plasma flow. It's called quasi-symmetry. So that the, okay. they, the plasma has, is, is simply easier to function. Now, this is nowhere near the scale of ITER. This is a much smaller reactor. Uh, they've spent a billion dollars on it. It's the first time they've spent that much on a Stellarator design. They've been around for a long time. And they okay. actually got it built more or less on time. It, 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 like I said, it ran the first time in December 2015. And last year, 2016, they went through their operational phase one. So they made hydrogen plasmas at about 80 megakelvins, which is in the range to actually cause fusion. One of the big goals of the accelerator was to have a 30-minute plasma runtime. Now, most plasma runtimes are measured in milliseconds. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's right. I'm, I remember that uh, nobody could really get a fusion happening in a sustained way. Right. Because yeah. if you're actually going to steadily fuse, like, how would you do that if uh, you can't actually sustain plasma for any length of time? So right. even on their first operational run, this was early in 2016, they got to run as long as six seconds. And I also remember from those conversations that we actually have fusion, but it just requires more energy in than we get energy out of it. Right. And the Stellarator was never designed to produce power. What it was designed to do was show that they could create stable plasmas because their design was inherently more stable. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So right now they're shut down. They shut down in July of 2016. They are upgrading the system, putting in new linings and uh, tweaking their superconductive magnets so that uh, in mid-2017, they should be able to do runs over 10 seconds. And they have plans over the next four years, so into the early 2020s, to get up to that 30-minute runtime. They got to use a good disinfectant. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. Well, one of the realities when you're fusing hydrogen, and typically you're fusing deuterium-tritium yeah. hydrogen, so those, uh, that's a hydrogen atom with one neutron and a hydrogen atom with two neutrons, is that you have these neutron emissions that are that are dangerous. Yeah. Right? They, they do damage. Yeah. And so... You have to uh, manage those neutrons in some degree, and it's one of the reasons the runtimes are so short. And so there's a lot of experimentation going on in the linings of the inside of these reactors to absorb those neutrons. Okay. Now, those are the toroidal magnetic confinements, and it means that their designs are very expensive and complicated to make because you've got to build a set of magnets that go around a donut. And so over the years, and a lot of this research came out of the 50s and 60s, and it's still going on today, the, there was sort of this idea of why do we have a donut? Why don't we we simplify it? Yeah. And so there, this new design came along called the compact toroid. So instead of having magnetic fields that went right around the entire circumference of the donut, they shrunk the center of the donut to the point where there was just a single conductor going down the middle of what was more or less a sphere. In fact, they ended up calling it a spherical tokamak for a while. Huh, kind of like the Star Trek warp core. It's getting more <laughs> warp core-ish, truly. But when you look at uh, the spherical talk about design, yeah, it's a little less flat. It's a little rounder. And you've just got this conductor down the center that because there's energy going through it, the plasma won't touch it. Yeah. And that's always the challenge here is you're trying to create a magnetic field strong enough to keep the plasma away from any surfaces where it would dump its potential. Yeah. And so they use these superconductive magnets to do that. Okay. Now that design, eventually somebody said, why is there even a conductor down the center? Why don't we just make the whole thing a sphere? And that became what's now known as the spheromac. Okay. So now you just have magnetic fields going around the sphere to compress that plasma to actually create uh, enough energy to, uh, to cause a fusion. Now, those designs really have not gotten out of universities. They're just straight experimental projects. But that concept ultimately evolved into what's known as the field reverse configuration. And I bring this up because it shows the path of all these different reactor designs. When you talk about the designs that this, that all the tech billionaires are supporting, like uh, Jeff Bezos' General Fusion, Tri-Alpha Energy, which is Paul Allen, uh, Peter Thiel and Helion Energy, they're all using this FRC design, which really is this idea of rather than building this complex sphere or donut or any variation on that, build a cylinder. And the cylinder has very strong magnetic fields packing around it to be able to control that plasma and pack it in. It almost seems smarter uh -huh. to 
to do that. And I have, it's just, I'm just intuiting my way toward that. You know, it, it, right. it seems like it should be easier to control if it's a sphere. Well, and so you, you, what you're seeing here is a range of philosophies, right? So the Tokamak is one of the oldest reactor designs. It has certain advantages and disadvantages. And the, there is a group of scientists ultimately manifest in what's happening in ITER that are keeping on tweaking the design they know and making it better and better and better and better. And ITER is supposed to be the ultimate manifestation of that, although it's clearly falling way behind. Yeah. Uh, and then you jump through, okay, well, what if that's not the best design? What's the design that makes more sense? And that's where you land on these FRC designs where you have a cylinder that's actually going to contain your fusion, very strong magnets around it, and you use your endpoints to do your injection into it. Okay. And so three designs we talked about before, and I'll just recap them quickly to say how they're going. General Fusion. This is actually in my backyard. They're in Burnaby, one suburb over from where I am. Wow. They've got about $100 million. A lot of it came from Jeff Bezos. They expect to have a running reactor in 2023. That's only six years away, if you think about it. Well, they uh, expect it, but how likely is it to yeah. happen? That's an excellent question. Now, this was the design, if you remember, where they have a big sphere co covered in lead that they're spinning the lead to, to create a hollow in the center of oh, it, right. molten lead. That's right. Then they, in then they inject the plasma into it and then use coils to compress the plasma and then use a sonic shockwave with compressors to actually cause the fusion detonation. And then the neutrons are naturally absorbed by the lead. So the lead will get even hotter and you'll tap your heat off of the lead to turn a turbine to generate electricity. No kidding. And it's one of the things I like about these designs. They're actually thinking about how to make power. Right. Right? Yeah. On the other hand, a spinning sphere of lead seems utterly insane. A well, uh, to me, it's, everything seems insane. But, you know, why, why <laughs> to you, Richard? It's just such a bizarre concept uh in in these designs compared to to everything else instead of just doing straight magnetic fields to actually create compression waves and stuff it's just very odd uh they i when you go the funny thing is when you deal with these companies is knowing that they now have money they're not talking very much yeah right because why does a why does a technology company talk they have something to sell whether that is more shares in a company so they have more money or they have a product well when you've got money and you're still working on your product you don't talk and so yeah. the fact that General Fusion's been awfully quiet lately is kind of a sign that they're busy building right now. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Now, let's talk a little bit about Tri-Alpha Energy. They're interesting to me, A, backed by Paul Allen. Mm -hmm. uh, B, they're out of the University of Washington, which has had one of the largest plasma research facilities for many, many years. In fact, much of the field reverse configuration, the FRC designs, came from research done there. They've just now sort of spin it off as a separate entity. Now, here's what's interesting about Tri-Alpha. Not only are they doing this sort of cylindrical design and so forth, but they're going for proton-boron fusion. Proton-boron fusion? So yes. Borons, protons of boron? So, normally, when we're talking about fusion, we're talking about deuterium-tritium fusion, right? Two yeah. different isotopes of hydrogen collided together to make helium. And, and one of the byproducts of that is a fair number of neutrons, which is a problem. What's interesting about boron-11 is when you slam a, a proton into it at high enough energy, it just splits into helium with no neutron releases at all. It's okay. called aneutronic fusion. Okay. Now, doesn't that sound awesome? You yeah, just well, have a lot of heat. You don't have any neutrons. It sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> What's the problem? <laughs> the problem is as you go up the atomic scale... You need more energy to create fusion. Sure, that makes sense. Right. So the optimal temperature for, for deuterium-tritium fusion is about 800 megakelvins. You can make it work at 80 megakelvins. So this must right? be why hydrogen is the go-to element because it's so right. simple. Because it's, and it's the lowest temperatures, right? Yeah. You can get DT fusion to happen at about 80 megakelvins. The minimum temperature for proton-boron fusion is 660 megakelvins. Uh, oh. Almost 10 times more energy. I think you're going to need a bigger fusion. oven. 
You are not wrong, sir, right? Like, that's exactly it. It's like, I, and you can see why most people, knowing that even the DT has all of these problems with the neutron emissions, it's destructive to the equipment and so forth. Yeah. It's just trying to get a sustained fusion reaction is where we're actually at. So I, I appreciate that Tri Alpha is going for the big one. It's just, dude, that's really hot. How, how are you going to get there? Right. The third one of the three, uh, this is Peter Thiel, the Y Combinator guys backing Helion Energy. Mm-hmm. They have a similar design for Tri-Alpha, but they say they're going to use Deuterium-Helium-3 aneutronic fusion. So, again, they're getting rid of the neutrons, but they want to depend on an element known as Helium-3. Okay. Now, na- natural helium is Helium-4, right? Two yeah. protons, two neutrons. Yeah. There's an extremely rare isotope of helium with two protons and one neutron. That's helium-3. Is it extremely rare because it's hard to create? Well, you can make it, but it takes enough energy to make it that why would you bother to fuse it then? Yeah, Um, okay. So, where does it come from? Well, and then interesting you should say that. There's a theory that there's a huge concentration of helium-3 on the surface of the moon caused by... The solar wind perpetually bombarding elements and making helium-3 so you could mine it off of the moon. We're moving to the moon! <laughs> yeah! <laughs> <laughs> and Helion says they have a source of helium-3. They know how to make it energy efficiently. Huh. I don't know that I believe them. Wow. But I hope it's true because an- aneutronic fusion is good stuff, right? That's really, really what you want. Wow. One more reactor design before the break, and then we'll change gears. It was the reactor design that we got asked about as soon as we published the fusion shows, the Lockheed Martin high beta reactor. Remember? Oh, yeah. You, we were very skeptical about that one. Well, here's the problem, right? They, they started that project back in 2010. The first time they announced it was in 2012, and they said, we're five years away from fusion. Right. That was in 2012, right? Yeah. So, it's 2017, kids. How you doing? Yeah. Then, yeah, then uh, there was the, another announcement that they were in 2014, shortly after our shows, where they were going to make a truck size 100 megawatt reactor. Uh, now they're saying they're going to have be commercialized by 2024. Uh, they're wow. saying the right things in the sense of, yeah, they want it to be a high beta reactor. They want it to be compact, you know, and so on. There's just, again, no evidence. On the other hand, they have been quiet the past couple of years, which makes me wonder if they're actually building things right now. I, that would excite me because I'm. Yeah, I just want this problem solved. Yeah, right. I don't really care who it is. I just don't see anything coming from them uh, that ne- it shows any more s- progress than Tri Alpha or any of the others. Really, you know, in some ways, the big projects like NIF and Iter, because they're publicly funded, are so much more transparent that we actually know where they're at. Where the private funding ones are kind of secretive, and so it's easy for us to play on our minds that they're further along than they actually are. Okay. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Uh, must be that happy time again. Yep. It's time to announce that I've discovered an inexhaustible energy source. It's a small box that fits in your backpack. It never needs maintenance. You turn it on, and it powers a small city. How does it work? Well, uh, I'll tell you, but uh, I have to finish the prototype. All I need is $100 million. And you can send your money to me via PayPal. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if $100 million would travel across PayPal, okay? <laughs> Let's find out, shall we? <laughs> uh, it's actually, t- it's kind of sounds like what a lot of this stuff is, right? You know, we, yeah. we have it. Just send money. More money. Yeah. It's actually time to give a give away a D experience subscription to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next generation touch enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an office inspired application or a data centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is James B. Hansen. Congratulations, James. Yeah. Golf clap for you, sir. Golf clap for James. 
James just won the coveted Developer Express D Experience subscription, a big pile of awesome from our friends at Developer Express, just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you don't know what that is, go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors, and every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you have to sign up to win. And uh, that's it. All right. Yeah. So do it now. <laughs> now. Right now. Am I am I wrong, though, that that uh, the whole Lockheed Martin thing just seemed like, a, you know, we've, we've solved the problem. We just need more money. Well, they and did they say that? Not really, right? They just said they're they're working on this thing. But you again, I always read any press release, any article, any of these yeah. things the same way. Why are they publishing? If you actually have Fusion Power cracked, you would just be selling the product, right? Right. So you need something. Mm -hmm. You need money. Typically, you need money, right? Right. Something along those lines. That's just sort of normal. And and all of these projects, to some degree, have money. Uh, and and that's what they're working on. Lockheed Martin, one of the wealthiest companies in the entire world. Mm -hmm. If they really think they have fusion crack, they don't need to say a word to anybody. Just build it and sell it. Right. There's lots of demand for this kind of power source. Right. So, you know, that nothing more than needs to be said. Yeah. All right. So where do we leave off? So, well, we've talked about, we started on the recap now of where all the existing reactor designs are. Mm -hmm. They all sort of share a common problem. And that is that their magnetic fields are just not powerful enough. Right. Right. They're struggling to maintain plasma concentrations for very long, literally in the fractions of a second. Because as the plasma energy builds up, because you're creating more and more heat, the plasma wants to expand and you need to press it back in with a stronger magnetic field. Okay. Right. This is what they call the beta limit. Yeah. Right. It's all about how well can you compress that magnetic field right and you want a stronger and stronger magnet the stronger that magnetic field is the higher the beta limit is the the better off you are at being able to actually uh, maintain that field mm -hmm. now when you're measuring magnetic fields the measurement is a tesla and yes it's named after nikola tesla huh. now the top of the line fixed magnet they, like if money's no object, you want to buy a really, really good magnet, you buy a neodymium magnet. You've Neo, heard the term. Neodymium sure. magnets are very powerful. Very powerful. These are powerful enough that they will break your hand if they slam together, that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and they're actually made up of a, co a combination of neodymium, uh, iron, and boron together. And a high-quality, sintered neodymium magnet can pull down a field as strong as one Tesla. Typically, we talk about millitesla's like fractions of a tesla right you know your your average fri fridge magnet 10 millitesla's the strongest physical magnet you can make or, or permanent magnet you can make so using a structure of neodymium magnets in a particular way called a hallback sphere mm -hmm. and this is a real thing but it's basically placing the magnets in a way that creates all of the magnetic field on one side you can get as high as four and a half Teslas. That's a pretty strong magnet. Like yeah. that's that's serious. Okay. And we use fields of that kind of strength. Your average MRI machine mm -hmm. has a three Tesla field in it. Wow. That's why you can't get an MRI if you get a metal plate in your head, right? <laughs> Suck it right <laughs> out. You don't want any metal anywhere near an MRI. Yeah. It's serious business. Now, the way an MRI machine works is they use a superconductive magnet. The superconductor in this case is niobium titanium. Okay. Okay, and it has to be cooled down to about four degrees Kelvin, so you need to use liquid helium to cool it, which is what makes these machines so expensive. Oh, all right. All right. Now, the ITER central coil, so this is their, the biggest fusion reactor in the world, still not finished, years away from being done, uses a slightly different superconductor, niobium tin. Mm -hmm. This is the same kind of coil used in the Large Hadron Collider. And again, cooled with liquid helium. Okay. And it can produce a 13.5 Tesla field at full bore. Admittedly, has not run yet. Okay. But this is fairly known technology, fairly known science. So they're pretty confident they're going to get a 13.5 Tesla field out of that central. Wow. 13.5. So just to give us some yep. uh, sense of scale, you know, what... 
what's enough to what's enough to contain what is whatever is necessary to create the fusion power that we're looking for. We're, we don't really know. We're trying to figure it out. The problem is that that's, and you realize that 13.5 Teslas, that's the kind of magnetic force that could hold the space shuttle down when it was trying to launch. Yeah. Right? Thinking back to my original Fusion show where I made that comparison, that's how powerful we're talking about. But they made the point that in this design, that's about as much power as this type of superconductor can pull off. Yeah. Like that's That's about it. Because you get into a point where... It has to be so big now right. that the field is no longer effective, and you also battle heat. If the magnet falls out of superconducting, it quenches abruptly, it can literally destroy itself. Wow. Now, there's research being done on higher-powered magnets. In fact, one of the best uh, facilities in the world is in Florida. It's the National High Magnetic Field Laboratory. Mm-hmm. And just late last year, November of 2016, they made the largest magnetic field ever created uh, using those same superconductive field coils. They got up to 36 Teslas. Whoa! That's pretty powerful, you know? That's three times, almost three times the power of what the ITER was capable of. Now, it's a very different design magnet, and it's actually what they call a hybrid magnet, so they're mixing high-temperature magnetic fields, copper magnetic fields, with superconductive fields together. Huh. I mean, you know, it's it sounds like a lot, but I just don't know. I have no way to know what's enough to contain the plasma to the point where it can actually generate, you know, boatloads of energy. Well, and, and again, it's a question of size versus how, how much plasma have you got in the container, mm. right? And how much energy is in it, right? Yep. So, you pump more ionized hydrogen into the chamber, more plasma in the chamber, you know, you're increasing its, uh, you have more matter to contain, and mm. then you're pressing it with a magnetic field to make it hotter mm-hmm. and it tends to want to expand so there's a balance there if you put in less it's easier to contain but is it enough to actually create fusion but the point is we're getting to the limits of what our current generation magnets can do okay that brings up new superconductive magnets Ooh. so we haven't done a show on superconductors yet we maybe i should it's, it's an interesting conversation. I mean, what's fascinating about superconductors is we don't really understand why superconductors work. Superconductors, if I may give a layman's perspective, uh, is basically removing all resistance from electrical activity. Is that exactly a good way to do it? A good way to say and, it? And so one of the advantages is in, in a conventional coil, right? So I take a piece of copper wire and I wrap it around a nail and I pass electricity through it. I just made an electromagnet, right? Right. And if I pass more and more electricity through it, what eventually happens? No, the nail will just disintegrate, right? Everything will melt, right? Yeah. You get a stronger, you add more power, you get a stronger field up until a point where the atoms disassociate. Yeah. So the nice thing with a superconductor is you don't have that heat problem. So you can keep pouring more and more power into it and substantially stronger fields. Mm. Now, back in the 90s, they discovered new superconductors. And I say discovered because, again, they don't really understand why superconductors work, so they don't know how to make new superconductors. Hmm. But it was mixing together different rare earths. And this is where in the news, right? Whenever you see those pictures yep. of a little cube of, of, of black stuff floating in a Petri dish, those were rare earth superconductors. I do remember in the 90s, you know, popular science yeah. was all abuzz with these things. Now, the problem is that they are ceramic, so they don't make wire very easily, right? Okay. I mean, the nice thing about uh, niobium tin is that it's actually malleable. You can pull it into wire. But when you're dealing with rare earths, it's much more difficult. There's a bunch of different formulas for making uh, superconductors in the rare earth combinations, but I'm only going to talk about one. I'm going to talk about what's called REBCO, or Rare Earth Barium Copper Oxide Superconductor. Okay. Now, what's interesting about this stuff is that you can use an incredible, in order to make it flexible, they make it into a kind of tape. It's literally a micron thick, layered onto hastaloy, which is a kind of flexible stainless steel, and then uh, with layers over top of it of different materials, including copper. So, you basically can make a flexible tape out of this material that can conduct a huge amount of power. And they figure it's at least a three times increase in magnetic power for the same area. Whoa. So, as an example, the National High Magnetic Field Laboratory in Florida, the ones who just done that 36 Tesla 
test. Right. One of their technologists bought, because you can buy Rebco tape. Really? Bought a piece, of, bought about 240 meters of Rebco tape and wrapped it around a, a small structure, literally about six inches long by three inches across. Passed power through it and put it inside the SCH while they were doing it. Wow. What happened? They got nine Teslas out of the Rebco piece, combined with 31 Teslas from the SCH for a 40 Tesla feel. Oh, my goodness. And it, uh, and they, it worked. And it was stable. Yes. But it, it was a very powerful magnetic field. But again, this was not a tokamak design or anything. This was a high-density magnetic field, not built for any other purpose. Got it. They're starting to experiment with this where they have a chamber. And again, you can watch for videos on this. They made a frog hover. It's a live frog hovering inside of a magnetic field because the magnetic field was so strong that the ferrous elements in that frog <laughs> held up the whole frog. Did the frog survive? Yes. Wow. Is he the same? I don't know. I don't know how to ask him. He frog. may have croaked. Ah, uh, save me. <laughs> you know, you're only supposed to do that in the middle of the show. <laughs> but interesting to sort of consider we could use better superconductors to get a much more powerful field. And one of the things they propose is with a three-time increase in field, you could take something like the joint uh, European Taurus, the reactor that preceded ITER. We talked about this briefly in the first show. Right. That's the one where they put in 17 megawatts of power and got 16 out. Right. In theory, if you redid that reactor with the Rebco fields, you'd put in your, your 17 megawatts of power and get out 500. Whoa. That's real power generation. That's real power. Right? The, you now ask me the logical question. Why don't they do that? Yeah, okay. Why don't they do that? <laughs> well, the problem is that the design, a Rebco magnet is very different from uh, a niobium magnet. Yeah. So you actually have to redesign the whole reactor to handle the materials. Okay. All right. Uh, it's, it's just a different approach to the magnet entirely. So they have to invent a different kind of reactor. And what kind of reactor is that? Now... Well, there's a group of people at MIT working on exactly that design reactor. Mm. The reactor is called ARC, which is entirely too Tony, Tony Stark for me, but it's an acronym for Affordable, Robust, and Compact. Ah. So they are, and the reason I brought up the jet reactor in the first place is they're basically going for the jet reactor size, which is a quite a manageable size. Okay. Using these Rebco magnets. All right. They also included a power collection solution because they are going to do DT fusion, right? Deuterium fusion? Deuterium tritium fusion. They're going to do DT fusion, which means they have a neutron problem, right? Yes. So wrapped around the torus would be a blanket using FLIB. What? We've, you've heard the term FLIB before. It's something they use in molten salt reactors. So FLIB is the shorthand for fluorine lithium beryllium salt. Okay. Now, what's great about the fluorine, lithium, beryllium salt, the FLIB salt, is that it absorbs neutrons very well and just heats up. It can take on neutrons very quickly. It's super stable at high temperatures, uh, you know, resists radioactivity reactivity extremely well. So when the fusion occurs to make helium, so deuterium and tritium collide, mm -hmm. they make a helium atom and a neutron. Yeah. The neutron strikes the FLIB blanket. Yeah. The FLIB blanket then, it, that, that neutron hits the, the lithium breaking it into helium and tritium. Okay. Right? Yeah. So you have this net reaction, basically, that says, I turn deuterium and, and lithium into helium. Yeah. So all stable, non-radioactive compounds that you just keep pumping around the system and taking the heat out to generate power. Yeah. So where they figure it's about 500 megawatts of thermal power, mm -hmm. with the fly blanket, they could actually make 250 megawatts of captured power from it. Holy man. That's a real reactor, man. That's real power. But it also deals with the idea that these neutrons are still wildly destructive. So you're going to have to routinely service the reactor. Their expectation is that every year you would have to pull the reactor apart and replace parts because of neutron damage. Wow. So, and part of the design, which is why it's called affordable, robust, and compact, is that it's designed to come apart so that you can lift the top part out and replace the damaged coils caused by neutron radiation. Hmm. Hmm. They figure they need $5 billion. You were only asking for $100 million. They need $5 billion. <laughs> Wow. 
and ask me how much funding they have. How much funding do they have? Why none? That's why they're talking about it. <laughs> Silly. Yeah, same story. Now, it's out of MIT, and these are the guys who invented a lot of the superconductors and so forth. They actually have a, a lighter weight project they call Spark for smaller or sooner privately funded arc. Huh. It's only about 5% of the size of the real arc reactor. It'd be a little one. Okay. Uh, they figure they need $350 million for that. Uh, it won't be a continuous running reactor. It's just to proof the design because the neutron levels would be too high for them to actually deal with. Wow. Uh, but it, it does speak to rethinking of fusion power with new superconductors. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there, there are solutions to the problem. There's also a, advances in like in materials too. So there's a, a, a fellow by the name of Kumar Sidran from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, mm -hmm. uh, working with a, a group in Italy as well that discovered a compound called aluminum oxide nanoceramic. Oh. And as it, where everything else gets bombarded by neutrons and breaks apart, like the, the tungsten linings inside of the jet reactor literally crumbled yeah. after, after uh, a year of running. Yeah. This stuff actually gets tougher. Huh. So th there are producing new materials now that make it more and more reasonable to manage the neutrons to be able to handle these reactions. So, uh, you know, I'm optimistic that we've got some good ideas going here. That's pretty cool, Richard. Well, you know, one thing that occurs to me is that solar power is getting so cheap and so abundant yeah. and so subsidized that it, it in, in it's working so well. Do we even need fusion power? It's a great question, dude. And, and I mean, solar is now getting so cheap, it's not being subsidized anymore because it doesn't need to be. Right? Hmm. Like it's literally the cheapest power in the world. Wow. And, and fusion doesn't work and solar definitely does. So they, they, I, I wonder if the fusion industry is running out of time yeah. just because as solar progresses, it's going to be harder and harder. Yeah. On, on the other hand, solar is compact. You know, right. if, if Lockmart's going to, is to be believed, they're talking about a hundred megawatts on the back of a semi-trailer truck. Yeah. 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 Now a mega, you know, you got to remember how big solar is or how, you know, non-dense solar sure. is. If you want to collect a megawatt of solar power with current panels, you're talking about 4,000 panels over five acres for one megawatt. Yeah. And just for reference, how many kilowatts does the average home consume? Uh, depends on where you are in the world, right? But figure on 10 kilo, between 10 and 20 kilowatts for the average Western home. All right. Europeans consume less. Africans dramatically less. Mm. But... You're talking about a hundred homes. Yeah. So a, a five acres full of solar panels can maybe power a hundred homes. That's what you're saying. Uh, yeah. Between a hundred and 150 homes for a megawatt of power. Ah, right. Wow. And so you, you know, you just realize that we have to cover a lot of acres with solar panels and there's the further north and south you get off the equator, the more challenging that gets. Well, that uh, that's why we have solar panels on our houses, isn't it? Because that's the right. obvious place to put them. And you and I were talking, I think it might have been in Amsterdam, about uh, there are people working on compact nuclear reactors as well. And I'm, I'm talking about fission nuclear reactors. Yes. But uh, the whole idea is to make them small enough so that they can go in the back of your car or your pickup truck. And you turn them on and they run forever and power your home or a city or a small town. Yeah, you think about that reactor I described for um, for space, the Safe 400. Yeah. That was a 100-kilowatt reactor that was like a foot across and three feet tall and yeah. weighed a ton. Yeah. Right? Now, and that's enough for a dozen homes, but it's just tiny. Right. It, that, the argument for fusion is extremely clean power and you don't need sunlight. Right. Right. So in the future, if you think about everywhere we're going to need power, if you want power under the ocean or under the ground or up in space, mm. this is very compelling if we can get to making that work. Right. Solar is going to take a big dent out of a lot of power generation. Right. And, and, it, and it already is. Yeah. Right. There are already governments saying no more money for fossil fuel power. It's all got to go to to largely solar and wind. Yeah. I think the fusion could project should continue. What I like about what's happening with the ARC reactor and the Rebco magnets is the argument we made right at the beginning. Why do we keep going bigger? Yeah, yeah. 
You know, that's right. Because, and it's this whole problem with because we don't have strong enough magnetic fields to create a strong enough beta limit to actually contain the plasma. Mm. I was reading a piece where a guy was saying the scale of ITER to actually generate power based on their current math, the reactor would be the size of a baseball stadium. Wow. And it's just impractical. Yeah. So it's interesting that better technology can come along to actually address this issue. Maybe the Rebco magnets are the ones. Maybe there's better magnets out there. Mm. That it's, it sounds to me like we need this core research trying to get there. Yeah. Uh, I don't know where it's going to come. Everybody's experimenting with everything else. Like the try, I'm, I read very closely on general fusion trial and so forth. And these guys, none of them are using Rebco magnets yet. So, you know, it still feels like now that people are going in their respective corners to experiment, yeah. they may not be sharing information well enough to actually take advantage of all these things. What's coming out of MIT is exciting because it's actually implementing the latest technology. Yeah. I hope it gets enough funding to really prove its point. Yeah. Me too. It would be amazing. Well, I guess that's it. Sounds like the end of the show. Thanks, yeah. as always, Richard Campbell. You bet, buddy. It's always, uh, always a pleasure hearing your brain droppings. Is <laughs> <laughs> that what those are? Yeah. All right. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a boy. Life is hard.